Today, I sat down with former senator and secretary of state and presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, and we covered a lot of ground. We talked about conflicts overseas in the Middle East and in Ukraine. We talked about Donald Trump's legal jeopardy and the utter chaos in the Republican Party. Chaos that, by the way, is on full display tonight with the Senate now scrambling to figure out a path forward after Republicans killed their own bipartisan border legislation in order to appease Donald Trump. For weeks, Republicans have insisted that they would not pass aid for Israel and Taiwan, as well as urgently needed funding for Ukraine, unless Democrats agreed to tough new border policies. Now, just to put this all in perspective for you, Ukraine is facing some of its biggest challenges since this war began. Russia has ramped up missile strikes across the country as Ukraine has been forced to ration munitions. The Ukrainian army is fighting fatigue and morale issues among its rank and file. And in the meantime, Republicans are playing politics. They are playing politics with the vital resources Ukraine needs to defend its democracy from invaders. So Democrats agreed to work with Republicans and to craft a bipartisan bill to increase border security measures in exchange for that aid. But then Donald Trump came out against the deal. He did not want to hand President Biden a victory on Trump's favorite campaign issue, which is drumming up fear about what's happening at the border. And so today, Republicans voted to kill their own bill in the Senate. The final vote was 49 to 50, with all but four Republicans voting against it. After that just stunning defeat, Democratic leader Chuck Schumer put a second bill on the floor. It strips out the border stuff and just funds aid to Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan, which is what the Democrats had wanted in the very first place. Fifty eight senators voted today to advance that bill. That is just shy of the 60 votes they are going to need for final passage. And now Senate leaders have until the end of the day tomorrow to convince two more Republicans to support this bill before the Senate leaves town for two weeks. But even if they do manage to convince those two senators, that aid bill is going to face an uphill battle in the Republican-controlled House. Ukraine is in desperate need of support, but Republicans are not willing to help Ukraine because they are terrified of Donald Trump's retribution. I asked former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton about all of that today. We're here because it's a panel on the future that's in a day of events related to the future of Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And I have to ask you, watching the sort of spectacle unfold in Washington around the sort of basic idea of Ukraine funding, Mm -hmm. what's your reaction to what the Republican Party has done on this issue or not done? Yeah. You know, it's fascinating, Alex, because I think uh, a very small minority of the Republican Party uh, has hijacked the party when it comes to a number of things like border security and aid for Ukraine. I actually think that a majority of Republicans in both houses, if given the chance, would vote for both border security and Ukraine funding. It doesn't appear they'll get a chance to vote on border funding because it's not clear that uh, it will pass uh, the cloture uh, requirement. But I think they will get a chance to vote on Ukraine funding along with Israeli funding. And I expect uh, that to pass both houses. So you're optimistic. I am about those two things. I think the stripping of the border security, the defeat in the House of the Israel aid only uh, sets up uh, a uh, 
uh, option for the Senate to pass both uh, Ukraine and Israeli aid and then send it to the House. I got to think, though, if you're Vladimir Zelensky, mm. right, and this is a matter of life and death, mm -hmm. and you're watching a circus unfold, mm -hmm. do you think it changes? There's so many reasons why, uh, you know, the globe has thought differently of America in recent years. But but a moment like that, where it's so clear that they're they're sort of engaging in the most base partisan theatrics over such an inc in incredibly critical issue for the mm -hmm. people of Ukraine. Do you think that forever changes the relationship America has with that part of the world? No, I think it raises questions. And those are understandable because watching this uh, profoundly uh, dysfunctional Republican Party uh, in the Congress uh, unable to make up its own mind about what it believes, what it will vote for, uh, in part because they are in thrall to Trump, which mm -hmm. is just uh, so hard to understand, uh, does, of course, raise questions. But I do think there is still a majority uh, in both houses uh, to support aid for Ukraine. And of course, President Biden is, you know, fully on board. Mm -hmm. So at the end of the day, I am hoping that uh, there will be a positive vote in the Congress, which will send a clear message, not just to Ukrainians, Europeans, others around the world, but to our own country. Why would we reward such not just only dysfunctional behavior, but it's all so unserious. It's it's I saw a columnist the other day use the word silly. It's profoundly silly to watch this circus in the Congress where Donald Trump is the puppeteer. You know, I was in the Senate for eight years and I know some of the people that are still there. I know they don't believe this. And why they continue to give in to him, I don't understand. I think that the border security would have been a very good time to stand up to Trump and say, you've been talking about it. We're delivering for you, Mr. President, uh, and go from there. So we'll see what happens next. Were you surprised by their capitulation to Trump's whims on the border bill? I was surprised because it was a really serious effort. Uh the Republicans have done this before. Uh, when I was in the Senate, we overwhelmingly passed an immigration reform, you know, in addition to security, other provisions as well. We passed it overwhelmingly in the Senate. Then President George W. Bush said he would sign it. And uh, the Republican leadership in the House would never bring it up for a vote. So I've said for years they'd rather have a problem on the border than a solution. But I thought this time, given the seriousness of the negotiation, the fact that it was only about security, that frankly, the Democrats gave up a lot yeah. to support uh, the Republican request for greater security, which I favored, actually. Um, and then at the last minute to have Donald Trump tell people who are independently elected in their states and have an obligation to represent their constituents and their conscience that they had to stop trying to solve the problem and go back to letting it fester for his own political purposes was pretty shocking to me. And, and to do so so explicitly, right? Yeah. There's no It wasn't even a surprise, was it? <laughs> it's just kind of like Trump's telling us we can't do it because yeah. it's not good for him in an election year, yeah. so we're not going to do it. And there were a few profiles in Courage for a little while, uh, people standing up and saying, what are you talking about? We, we want to solve this problem. That's why we were sent to Washington. But then they capitulated. And honestly, it shows a real danger uh, 
that Trump poses, where it doesn't matter whether you have a bipartisan agreement to solve a problem or not. If he wants it for political purposes, then he tries to and succeeds in blowing it up. That is what authoritarians do. Mm -hmm. And that's yet another reason why we can't let him anywhere near the White House again. That's former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton weighing in on the existential threat that Donald Trump poses to the legislative process, among other things. Joining me now is MSNBC's chief correspondent and host of Velshi on the weekends, Ali Velshi. I should note that Ali has, of course, reported extensively from Ukraine and even moderated a panel on Ukraine recovery today at Columbia University, which is where I was speaking yep. with Secretary Clinton. There you are at that very well-timed um, panel, Ali. I want to get to the sort of Ukraine of it all in a second. But, you know, we I think for the last couple of days, we've thought the border negotiations were emblematic of the stranglehold that Donald Trump has on the party. But it seems to me that, like, there's a step further. Ukraine could also could be be even more of a test, given what's passed with the border bill, about the degree to which Donald Trump has destroyed this party and and everything that it once stood for. At least the border issue, while everybody should have wanted to fix it. Nobody's actually gotten it right for a long time. And Republican priorities are different from Democratic priorities. Yeah. Not so on Ukraine. That's the wild part that that the, the support for funding Ukraine prior to this war as an ally that was defending itself against an adversary was almost complete yeah. in both houses of Congress. So the idea that, as Hillary Clinton said to you, people are voting against their own interest. If they were just allowed to vote, they would they would probably support Ukraine. But they're not because you can't get out of this mindful field that Donald Trump has planted. Doing the right thing is not the right thing. Now, remember, on the border, Donald Trump just wants an issue. On Ukraine, he's got other interests. Well, right. I mean, that that makes it even more nefarious because you could at least kind of like put your head sleep, sleep sort of well at night saying eventually we'll if Trump is president, we'll deal with the border. Right. But Ukraine needs the money now. And, and Ukraine will go the wrong way. Like yes, if you're, if you're, this if is if a you're, victory for Putin. Yes, if Putin, all Putin needs to do is hold out for another few months. Now, the, the, it's a stalemate on the ground. It's not a stalemate elsewhere. The Ukrainians have made gains. They've pushed the Russians basically to the east of the Black Sea. They've, the Russians do not have air superiority the way they did. It's been a very bad 24 hours for Ukraine. A number of uh, drones and missiles hit Kiev. Uh, we know at least four people are dead uh, in the last 24 hours. But they are pushing back. The bad news is we're two years into the war. The good news is it's two years in and Ukraine's still around because there was speculation Ukraine wouldn't last a week. Well, yes. But the fact of the matter is each week yeah. is a gift to the Ukrainians. It really it's is. Not this a foregone can conclusion. go away any time. And that's the danger. If you're Vladimir Putin, you just want Donald Trump to come in and you will do what you need to do if you have to interfere in the election to have that happen. That's what the difference is here. These members of Congress who are playing whack-a-mole and chicken with what they think Donald Trump wants, you could lose Ukraine in the process and possibly other countries around it. It is not just Donald Trump who is parroting Putin's lines. Tucker Carlson, who is, you know, a band leader, if you will, for this faction of Republicans who are defeating these bills, was in Moscow interviewing Vladimir Putin. I asked Secretary Clinton about that journalistic endeavor, Mm -hmm. and this is what she had to say. Tucker Carlson is in Moscow right now interviewing Vladimir Putin. Right. The first American, I'll say, journalist uh, to interview Putin since the war in Ukraine Mm -hmm. began. What does that tell you about Tucker Carlson and right-wing media and also Vladimir Putin? Well, it shows me what I think we've all known. He's what's called a useful idiot. I mean, if you actually read translations of what's being said on Russian media, they make fun of him. I mean, he's like a puppy dog. You know, he somehow has, after having been fired from so many 
outlets in the United States. He, uh, I would not be surprised uh, if he emerges with a contract with a Russian outlet because he is a useful idiot. He says things that are not true. He parrots Vladimir Putin's uh, pack of lies about Ukraine. Uh, so I don't see why Putin wouldn't give him an interview because through him, he can, you know, continue to lie about what his, you know, objectives are in Ukraine and, and uh, you know, what he expects to see happen. It's really quite sad that not just somebody like Tucker Carlson, who has, as I said, been fired so many times because he seems unable to, you know, correlate his uh, reporting with the truth, um, but also because he, it's a sign that there are people in this country right now who are like a fifth column for Vladimir Putin. And why? I don't know. I mean, why are certain Republicans throwing their lot in? Why are, you know, other Americans basically believing uh, Putin? Why did Trump believe Putin more than our 11 intelligence agencies? Hmm, I don't know. Do you have a working I theory? I do have a working theory. And but but it's 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 more than just the political partisan advantage. There is a yearning for leaders who can kill and imprison their opponents, destroy the press, uh, lead a life that is one of impunity, unbound by any laws. There's a yearning among certain people in our country for that kind of leadership. And I find that absolutely gobsmacking terrifying. I find it gobsmacking terrifying, yeah. too, Allie. And it's yeah. kind of like we talk about, you know, disinformation on social media. Well, disinformation from people like Tucker Carlson, yeah. the platform he has and the fact that you know, he's a willing participant yeah. to and, it. And has been for a while. So he, he's been a big fan of Viktor Orban in Hungary. You yep. know, Viktor Orban comes and speaks at these events here and Tucker Carlson goes and does a show from Hungary. He talked before the war came out about how we shouldn't be in bed with Ukraine because it's a, he called it a corrupt little country. Ukraine had a corruption problem. There's no problem and no question. And when it emerges from this war, they'll have to fix that because they'll be under the watchful eye of the rest of the world. It's not a reason for getting invaded by Russia. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, one of the things Tucker said is um, American journalists will not hold uh, Vladimir Zelensky to account. It's like, I, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I mean, we, we cover that war. Uh, there are things that Ukraine's Ukrainians do that are, are not fantastic. And we discuss it with them at all times. But they are a country that has been invaded by another country. And it fundamentally believes in sort of like, you know, dem democracy yes, in yes. a way that Vladimir Putin, who has journalists right. in jail, Ukraine has been speak. for 20 years struggled to find its democratic footing, and it really has struggled. But they are trying and trying and trying. And that's what the, the larger point is. In the same way that in America, if someone doesn't like exactly like all of Joe Biden's policies, what you have to look at for this election is it's existential. It's a choice between who's upholding democracy and who's not. That's your issue in Russia and Ukraine. Who's upholding democracy and who's not. But Tucker Carlson is going to be there and be the journalist that none of us are. And Knock I say, out. yeah, journalist in quotes. Yes. In you quotes. are a journalist without quotes, thank my friend. You uh, thank you for joining my me. Pleasure. Thank you for, you know, holding high the lamp, uh, shining a light on what is happening over in Ukraine, both on air and at places like Columbia University. Thank it's you. great to see you, Ali Velshi. We have lots more of my exclusive interview with Hillary Clinton coming up, including her thoughts on what the Supreme Court might do regarding both Donald Trump's presidential immunity claims and whether he's actually eligible to run for president. Stay with us.
everyone, it's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters, both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. All eyes are on the Supreme Court now that Donald Trump has officially lost his presidential immunity argument at the circuit court level. He has until Monday to appeal that decision to the Supreme Court. And the way the high court responds to that almost inevitable appeal could effectively decide whether special counsel Jack Smith and his federal election interference case against Trump can move forward. I asked former secretary of state, former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton, what she thinks is going to happen next. Are you optimistic about what the Supreme Court does next? I think on this particular issue, um, if I were the Supreme Court, I wouldn't want to wade into this. It's such a good opinion, I would deny cert, let the opinion stand. It's in line with previous opinions. You know, when Trump made the argument about, well, you know, this will you know, hamstring future presidents, well, he's the only one who has been in this position. And he is the only one who has claimed such broad, blanket immunity. Uh, and we know what his real thoughts are. Remember, I could shoot somebody on Fifth Avenue. My supporters wouldn't care. He thinks that he should be above the law, that he should be able to manipulate the law. The last time I checked, despite Trump and his supporters' efforts to uh, undermine this, we were a nation based on the rule of law, not on the rule of individual men the way that Trump keeps trying to claim. I mean, as someone who ran for the presidency and won the popular vote, is it like, can you even wrap your head around arguing in court that you should be able to kill your, assassinate your political enemies using SEAL Team 6? I mean, how did that that argument land with you? Well, you know, he says so many outrageous things that I think a lot of people have stopped listening Mm. and they shouldn't. They should pay very careful attention to what Trump says, because if they do, they can see the linkage between what he says and what he tries to do. In his first term, on many occasions, he was reined in and even stopped by the people around him because there were people who he put into important positions, who had served in government under prior Republican presidents, who understood the rule of law, who understood the constitutional system and so much more. They were able to stop him. He will now fill those positions, if ever given a chance, which I hope never happens, with people who are totally members of his cult. And I don't say that lightly or as a throwaway line, because when I look at people who I know were horrified by January 6th, who are Republicans in the House and the Senate, 
who have come around to dismissing it, to discounting the horror that they themselves felt yeah. as they, you know, put put themselves under desks as they ran down hallways, as they tried to escape the mob coming at them. There is something about Trump's hold on the Republican Party that is frightening. Now, somehow the fact that Trump was resoundingly rejected by the federal appeals court has not dimmed Trump's enthusiasm for using that presidential immunity defense elsewhere. Today, we got the news that Trump is also trying to argue he has presidential immunity in the Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Trump's lawyers told the court today that they are going to file motions attempting to toss that case out for a whole litany of reasons, but chief among them was, yet again, presidential immunity. So how the Supreme Court responds here is going to matter well beyond just the D.C. election interference case. Although there is one place it won't go, the state of Georgia. Down in Fulton County, where D.A. Fonnie Willis is prosecuting Trump for election conspiracy, Trump is also trying to claim presidential immunity. But in the appeals court ruling yesterday, in a footnote, the court made clear that its ruling does not apply to state-level prosecutions. That means the appeals court decision would not apply to Trump's case in Georgia. So could his presidential immunity defense fly in a different state? We are going to get some expert legal help unpacking all of that and hear more of my interview with Hillary Clinton right after the break. Get the latest updates on this year's high-stakes election with MSNBC's How to Win 2024 newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll get expert analysis on key races sent straight to your inbox, including articles written by the host of the How to Win podcast, Jennifer Palmieri. Subscribe today at msnbc.com win. There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents... Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tomorrow morning, the Supreme Court will hear oral arguments as to whether Donald Trump's role in the January 6th insurrection disqualifies him from running for president. Now, this all began when Colorado's highest court ruled to exclude Trump from that state's primary ballot because he had violated the anti-insurrection provision, Section 3, of the 14th Amendment. I spoke to former presidential candidate Hillary Clinton about how she thinks the court will handle such a novel case. The Supreme Court is taking up the 14th Amendment question mm-hmm. tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. Did Trump foment an insurrection? Mm-hmm. Should he be taken off the ballot? Let's table the first part of that. Mm-hmm. But the idea of, of effectively defeating Trump by getting him off the ballot, do you mm-hmm. think that is a good endeavor or not? Well, I've tried to educate myself on this because it's clear that this uh, is not uh, a section of the 14th Amendment, Section 3, that a lot of us paid a lot of attention to yeah. in the past. Haven't had to. Haven't had to, thank goodness. Um, but there's a very strong argument. And remember, this argument did not come from liberals. It didn't come from people, you know, who already are against, you know, Trump <clears throat> at all. They came from conservative uh, originalists, as they like to call themselves, um, law professors, lawyers, 
who basically said, if you read Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, it's pretty clear that he should not be permitted to run for president. I think the argument is very strongly on their side. Now, what's the remedy? Is the remedy for the Supreme Court to say, no, he can't be on the ballot? Or is the remedy for the court to say, this very well can apply constitutionally, but it's up to the states to make the determination? Because remember, states mm. in our federalist system actually run elections. Yeah. Uh, and I think that might be where the court ends up. Maybe they could get to the point of saying, no, no, Section 3 doesn't apply, or you have to be convicted first. They, they could come up with some out for Trump. But if they want to be true mm -hmm. to their so-called originalist interpretation, then I think they have to find that Section 3 applies to people who foment and participate in insurrections. But the remedy lies in the states, which would be kind of a a fair way of kind of parsing this. Do you worry, though, if it's left up to the states, you basically get Trump taken off the ballot in blue states and staying on the ballot in red states? That's what our federalist system, you know, very well may lead to. Um, I think it'd be better if he were just roundly defeated. But on the other hand, I also don't think it's wise to ignore the Constitution. So mm -hmm. it's a really difficult problem that he has uh, created for the courts and for uh, states, you're in a dilemma. If you ignore the Constitution and basically say, uh, we're not paying attention to it, or if you try to write it away and say it doesn't apply, even though I think most historians as well as legal experts say it does, you're also doing damage. Mm. So that's why I say maybe they'll come up with this approach with, look, the states run elections, it's going to be up to the states. I think a lot of states will be very reluctant to take him off the ballot because yeah. I think that would be a political firestorm in a lot of states. But on the other hand, some will. I just wonder, I mean, I think about the 2016 election, right? Yeah. And we're yeah. so, we're more deeply divided than even then. Yeah. And I think about the 2020 election where, you know, half the Republican Party, half, no, three quarters of the <clears> Republican <throat> Party, depending on the polling, doesn't believe that Joe Biden won. What happens if you don't even have Donald Trump on the ballot, and one part of a country, you know, elects Joe Biden, the other part of the country elects Donald Trump. Well, but look at why we're in this mess. We're in this mess because we have uh, a man who cares nothing about our Constitution, yeah. cares nothing about our country, cares nothing about real national security. All he cares about is himself. That's yeah. all he cares about. He cares about his own power, his own prestige, his own standing. And how do you say wait a minute, this is not permitted within our system. As I said, I would be perfectly satisfied if we beat him both in the popular vote and in the Electoral College, as Joe Biden uh, did so convincingly in 2020. But we also have laws, and that's what courts are for. They have to interpret those laws. Joining me now are Chuck Rosenberg, MSNBC contributor and former U.S. attorney and senior FBI, FBI official, and Christy Greenberg, former SDNY criminal division deputy chief. Thank you both for being here, guys. Um, Chuck, let me just start with you in terms of the scenario that uh, Secretary Clinton paints there, the idea that the Supreme Court might return this decision to the states. I mean, how... How realistic do you think is that coming from the high court? I've heard a lot of smart people say a lot of different things yeah. about what might happen. <laughs> I'd be lying to you if I told you that I knew. But look, Secretary Clinton is right. In the main, 
elections are the province of the states. Yeah. Right. And they set lots of rules when polls open, when polls close, when mail in ballots are due, all of those sorts of things. So is it possible that the Supreme Court returns this to the states? I think so. Strikes me that it would be chaotic. Completely chaotic. Wouldn't it be crazy? I mean, then it would I mean, would it not just be up to depending on what the process is for getting a name on the ballot, the secretaries of state or the voters to sue the secretaries of state to get Donald Trump's name removed? Right. I think the Supreme Court is going to issue a holding that will be broadly applicable to all states. I think that is what they're going to endeavor to do so that they don't have to relitigate however many different state lawsuits that may come their way here. Because, yeah, the possibility for chaos is endless in that scenario. I wonder, Chuck, because, you know, we're talking about this immunity claim that the president continues to make down in Mar-a-Lago. He's making it in the Georgia case. We'll get to that in a second. Do you think that these two cases, that, that there's kind of, um, whether spoken or not, an intersection in the minds of the court, like they might, might hand Trump a loss on a presidential immunity defense if they hand him a win on the 14th Amendment case, which would be you can stay on the ballot. Yeah, certainly linked in the minds of the public, I yeah. think. Whether or not the justices are thinking of it that way, Alex, I don't know. But it's hard because they don't, in many cases, they can pick what they hear, right? Many, many people petition the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court takes a very small number of cases each year. I think here they're kind of stuck. These are the biggest, most important yeah. cases, and they involve really difficult constitutional issues. So I'm not sure you can duck it. And I hope they decided on the facts and the law in front of them, not one for you and one for the other guy. I think that would be a mistake. Um, Christy, I don't understand. Can you just explain to those of us who are new to the law? That's me about how, you know, if the D.C. Circuit Court can rule so, you know, definitively on the presidential immunity case, the wisdom of basically throwing that spaghetti back at the wall down in Florida, which is effectively what Trump seems to be doing. Look, Trump has had a lot of success in Florida before Judge Cannon, and I think he's shooting his shot and hoping that maybe she will come up with some different uh, interpretation. Again, I, I, the D.C. Circuit opinion is so good. It is so clear and convincing in how it just methodically disposes of each of Trump's arguments. So for her to come out completely differently, I feel would be pretty lawless at this point. And I don't I actually don't think that that's where this would land. But he's going to make it take his best shot. Well, you're, yeah. yeah no, and if I could add one thing, Christie is exactly right. But the D.C. Circuit doesn't bind Judge Cannon. Right. Judge Cannon in the Southern District of Florida resides within the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. So Christie's 100 percent right. It's a very, very strong opinion, well-reasoned, well-written. In another part of the country. In another part of the country. <laughs> and so if the goal, Alex, is delay, and delay has been the goal, why not raise the same issue in another place? Could, could the Supreme Court feasibly not take up the, C, the Circuit Court of Appeals litigation and just if Eileen Cannon takes this up and rules on it, like, could it could they could an alternate sort of pipeline uh, go to the Supreme Court? Does that make any sense? I'm not making any sense. Can, could, could they basically take up Eileen Cannon's version of this and not the D.C. Circuit Courts? Yes, actually. So if 
I would expect that the Supreme Court may have some real questions as to whether or not there is anything there for them to answer. This was a unanimous, unanimous opinion. It was a strong opinion. So they may not take it up. It may go back to Judge Chutkin and she may set a trial date. Now, let's say Judge Cannon does something very different. And then she's been she's been known to do that. She does. She does something very different. It goes to the 11th Circuit. They have a very different view. Now you have a conflict in the circuits. That may then be something that the Supreme Court would take up again, though. These arguments that Donald Trump is making about having absolute immunity, they're frivolous. Yes. And so I I really don't see I I don't foresee Judge Cannon, you know, straying too far from what the D.C. Circuit has already ruled or the 11th Circuit, for that matter. Um, I do have to ask because the circuit court was so clear, Chuck, saying this decision does not hold for state level prosecution. Donald Trump is trying out the presidential immunity defense, yes, at Mar-a-Lago with Judge Cannon, but he's also trying it out down in Georgia with Judge McAfee and uh, the Fonnie Willis conspiracy case. Do you think the dynamics change dramatically down there? I don't think the law changes dramatically. But again, if you look at it through the lens of delay, if your goal is to push these cases off as far as you possibly can, then what's the incentive for Mr. Trump not to raise it again in Georgia, in Florida, anywhere that he's charged? It doesn't mean he's going to win. Christie's right. It's a very strong opinion. The law is clear. The appeal was frivolous. But look at it through the lens of delay. Why not? Hey, why not? Seems to be the legal strategy in Trump land. Chuck Rosenberg and Christy Greenberg, thank you guys both for your time and brilliant analysis on all of this. I appreciate you. Tomorrow night, starting at 8 p.m. Eastern, speaking of the 14th Amendment, I'll be joining our colleagues in our primetime special coverage, a recap of oral arguments at the Supreme Court all about that 14th Amendment case. You're not going to want to miss it. Coming up, Secretary of State Hillary Clinton weighs in on the war in Gaza and what she thinks needs to happen with Prime Minister Bibi Netanyahu. That is next. Today, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu rejected a counterproposal for a ceasefire put forward by Hamas, saying there is no solution besides total victory for Israel. Despite this setback, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said he still hoped a deal could be reached to pause the fighting and pledge that the U.S. will work at that relentlessly until it gets there. I spoke with former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton about the war in Gaza and what happens next, and this is what she had to say. I got to ask because you, you said what is, you know, the people being killed over there is horrible. It's 20, uh, more than 27,000 Gazans have been killed. And Israel estimates that a fifth of the hostages have been mm-hmm. killed. In the meantime, universities and schools have been destroyed. Young Gazans are ripe for radicalization. If your goal as the Israeli government is to root out terrorism, root out Hamas, how is any of this in the interest of the Israeli government? You know, it's a war, Alex, that Israel didn't start. Hamas started it. And Israel has a right to defend itself, but it has to abide by the laws of war. Look what Russia's done to Ukraine, destroying hospitals, schools, leveling, you know, whole cities, kidnapping children. It's horrible. It's horrible. When you're the aggressor, as Hamas was in on October the 7th, or as Russia was in February of 2022, what do you do with an aggressor? You have to stop them. And I think it's fair to say Hamas cares nothing about the civilians who are being murdered 
or killed, both by Hamas still in Gaza or through military operations by Israel. The Hamas leaders could not be clearer. Hamas, Hamas is not doing anything to protect Palestinians. Israelis civilians. are now targeting Rafah, which is where they told Palestinians I, to move to. Well, they, that is horrible. It's horrible, and it is something that we wish there was a ceasefire. If Hamas would agree to a ceasefire, there would be a ceasefire. And Secretary Clinton had this to say about President Biden's current relationship with Prime Minister Netanyahu and how that might and maybe should change. What do you think of Biden's handling of the issue? I mean, he was very early in, you know, lockstep with Prime Minister yeah. Netanyahu. Mm -hmm. It feels like he's there's a bit more distance between the two men, especially on the subject of a two state solution. Um, it seems like it could be costing Biden politically. I think Biden has done everything that he could do to, number one, respond to the legitimate concerns of the Israeli people uh, following October 7th. Uh, to ally himself with Israel in the face of a terrorist attack from a terrorist organization. But I think it's also clear that Biden is doing everything he can to influence, you know, Netanyahu. I've written about this. I've said Netanyahu should go. He is not a trustworthy leader. It was on his watch that the attack happened. He needs to go. And if he's an obstacle to a ceasefire, if he's an obstacle to exploring what to be what's to be done the day after he absolutely needs to go he absolutely needs to go i'll get a, i'll be discussing that and what secretary clinton had to say about ceasefire protests across the u.s including in her own classroom at columbia university that's next One of the biggest issues for him right now, especially with voters of color, young voters, is Gaza. We're sitting on the campus of Columbia University. Mm -hmm. um, this has been a place where there have been a lot of protests that have made national news. Um, students are decrying what they call censorship. There have been protests. Some people have protested your mm -hmm. classes. Mm -hmm. What is the appropriate way for a university to handle the deep divide um, and, and the questions about, you know, what can and what cannot be said in the course of mm -hmm. debate. Well, I, I think that there's, there's a, a, a role for protest, and I think there should be uh, rules set, guardrails set, you know, just like, you know, you have to get a permit to have an event or a march here in, in New York. And it's, I'm not saying it's easy because it's not. And I think people who violate the rules um, have to be held accountable. Uh, so from my perspective, you can't have a responsible debate about whatever your point of view is if you're screaming at each other. Do you think, though, I mean, there are people that understand and believe that what is happening in Gaza is a genocide, right? And I would imagine it's hard to say, you can talk about it, you can call it genocide, but you, you have to do it in this way. You know, it, it, no, no, you can have that conversation in a classroom, yeah. but not screaming about it. That was Professor Hillary Clinton explaining her views on the wave of ceasefire protests across the U.S. and on college campuses. Joining me to discuss all that is Michelle Goldberg, opinion columnist for The New York Times. Michelle, thank you for being here. So I, just for some context here, I mean, Hillary Clinton, yes, former secretary of state, yes, former senator, former presidential candidate. She is she has been teaching at Columbia University. She started, I think, the Institute of Global Politics there. Today, she spent three hours, you know, as part of a panel talking about the future of Ukraine. This is someone who's grappling with this kind of campus 
free speech concerns in and around the war in Gaza, quite literally on her front doorstep. Um, I wonder what you make of her sort of delineation that some conversations can happen, but they have to happen in an orderly fashion when you're talking about something like whether genocide has been committed or not. Well, I would say, I mean, it doesn't surprise me that somebody who's a professor or an administrator is not a fan of disruptive <laughs> protest, right? I mean, especially when often she's the one being disrupted. I kind of feel like it's too much to expect her to cheer that on, even if you do sympathize with the concerns of the protesters. And I think she's right that some of these really thorny questions, like whether Israel's um, actions in Gaza can be construed as genocide do require a lot of kind of nuanced conversation about international laws of war rather than just the shouting of slogans. But I was really quite shocked by some of what she said about just her kind of, you know, Anthony Blinken today in Jerusalem is able to say that is that the civilian casualties in Gaza are unacceptably high. It's yeah. really surprising to me not to hear her say that. Well, I mean, I, you know, I asked her point blank, you know, what about Rafa, which the Israelis are reportedly targeting, which is where Palestinians were told to flee. And she said it's horrible, but effectively it's war, Alex. Um, it feels like there are a number of divides here. One, there's a sort of like just divide on how you understand what you understand the nature of war, what how you understand the nature of war, what you think Israel should be allowed to do in its uh, purported own defense. And then it feels like there's very much a generational divide on this, mm -hmm. too. Right. And I think you saw the early iteration of that in Biden's initial response to this. Right. It was as if he really just didn't understand where a whole sort of, you know, where the American youth in large part are on this issue. And they see it wildly differently. Right. And I think, like, it's, I'm glad that you put it like that, that there are separate divides, because there's a divide about kind of who is the aggressor, in yeah. which in which case, you know, I side with people who say that, you know, Hamas started this round of hostilities with their rampage and massacre on October 7th. But the question is, does, that doesn't license anything in response, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton, I feel like, gestured towards, yes, Israel has to follow the laws of war. But I would like to know whether she thinks they are following the laws of war, because there has been a lot of evidence, not just in these truly horrific and unacceptable levels of civilian casualties. But, you know, we have video, the New York Times reported just this week on the social media videos of Israeli soldiers, you know, kind of committing vandalism, um, bulldozing and blowing up civilian infrastructure in a way that kind of is very unclear that there's any military purpose. There is a lot of evidence that Israel is not taking every step possible, uh, you know, far from it to protect the people of Gaza. And there's not really, you know, and you hear the rhetoric coming from Israeli leaders that's extremely heedless of, of Palestinian life. Well, to that end, she's really clear that Bibi Netanyahu needs to go. I think it's right. interesting that you have this kind of lacuna around the aggressions of Israel, the potential genocidal acts, the war crimes it's potentially committed. And you, you, she's not going to necessarily address that, but she will say, well, that's a consensus issue. I mean, I feel like that's, some, you know, that's, that's pretty close to a consensus issue in Israel itself. I mean, not a consensus issue, but you have overwhelming opposition at this point to Bibi Netanyahu, whatever your views on the war. Do you think um, when we talk about the protests in Israel and the United States, I mean, what do you make of the sort of peril that Biden has to manage at this hour, um, given the ceasefire agreement's not going where it needs to go. The casualty numbers are staggering and a fifth of the hostages may be dead. 
I mean, it's obviously extremely serious. And you see this in polls of both, you know, kind of Muslim and Arab voters who are souring on Biden, pledging not to vote for him in disaffection of young voters in these really distracting primary battles over Israel in lots of um, congressional campaigns. And I think Biden recognizes that he needs to create some distance from Bibi Netanyahu. You know, he's he just put this, um, you know, he's he's sanctioned West Bank settlers in what is a really important step. But I still think there needs to be more distance. And, you know, I, the the theory, at least what kind of the administration was saying, was that they're hugging Bibi in public and then trying to prod him in private. Well, Bibi has no interest in kind of shoring up Biden's political Correct. fortunes, right? He holds him in in complete contempt. So, you know, I think it's t- it's past time to admit that strategy is not working. Yes, I can say Bibi Netanyahu is probably a Trump supporter at this point. Oh, I, yeah, I think there's Joe no question. Joe Biden, take a note. Michelle Goldberg, thank you so much for your time thank you. tonight, my friend. That is our show for this evening. 